You are tuned into the State of Cannabis News Hour, where industry leaders, regulators, and lovers of cannabis gather collectively to move policy forward in an inclusive and sustainable way. Professionals and cannabis curious alike can tune in to hear leading cannabis experts share and discuss headlines, critical industry issues, social topics, and more. Hi, and welcome to the State of Cannabis News Hour, where we bring you all the top stories you need to know and talk about them for four minutes and 20 seconds. We are a group of experts in different cannabis spaces with a wide diversity of perspectives and life experiences. Our news is bite-sized and infused with a nice mix of facts, opinions, and a pinch of humor. It's Friday, June 10th, 2022. This is episode number, guess what, 299, y'all. Yesterday was our 100th uh, podcast episode, and we hit over 10,000 downloads in less than six months. Yay, team! I'm Susan Sores, the founder of the State of Cannabis News Hour, author of the children's book, What's Growing in Grandma's Garden, and Cannabis's favorite grandma, a.k.a. Nanogram. If you're listening to the podcast, the show is live every weekday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time on Clubhouse. Spark it up with us and over 31,000 State of Cannabis News Hour members if you want to be an audience participant. Otherwise, please subscribe and to support the show. We'd love to hear from you, so please leave us a review. Today we're talking about high times having some bad times. Talking about safe banking again, y'all. <clears throat> also, Snoop Dogg is giving his blunt roller a raise to combat inflation. North Carolina's take on legalization, it ain't pretty. How the war is speeding up Ukraine's effort to legalization. <clears throat> Why cannabis dominates, <clears throat> sorry, dominates drug seizures along our borders. And many other frosty nuggets, so stay tuned for the full 60 minutes of the State of Cannabis News Hour. The following program contains coarse language and nudity. Viewer discretion is advised. Audience, feel free to raise your hands if you want to weigh in on a headline after it's been read, and we'll try to bring you up to the stage. Keep it brief and relevant, or you might get the gong. Kicking off the show today is our very special Mr. Rico Lamite. He likes to ask the tough questions the mainstream media refuses to ask. He doesn't just ask questions. He goes out there and gets the story himself. The self-proclaimed dopest dad alive is here to encourage other dope dads. Find him on TEDx or at the Summit of the Americas or at one of his Cannavision events, but always find him here every weekday as co-producer of the State of Cannabis News Hour. What have you got for us today, Rico? Man, so uh, this one's a little bit of spice, but um, yeah, we'll see. Can't wait for the uh, comments on this one. Just keep it at that. So my story's coming out of the SFist. High Times is on the hook for $5 million in unpaid rent at a failed dispensary uh, store in uh, Union Square, San Francisco. High Times Magazine has been an American literary gem since 1974. Some have even credited the legendary MJ Mag for essentially creating modern cannabis culture as we know it. Unfortunately, the and as industry legalization efforts expanded beyond California over the last five years, the company's also become widely known for its money mismanagement, seemingly teetering on the edge of insolvency and negative high-profile headlines dating back to at least 2017. 
But this hasn't stopped the legendary pop periodical from trying a few creative, if not scammy, schemes to achieve financial success along the way, leading us into today's story from the SFist. In April 2020, HT announced they'd be buying 13 California dispensaries, including one in San Francisco, in a supposed $80 million deal. At the time, executive chairman Adam Levin went on Bloomberg to brag about the deal, saying they'd literally be next to a Chanel store. What he failed to mention was the space had already been under fire uh, from their luxury, their new luxury brand neighbor, Chanel, as a previously proposed have a heart dispensary. Both sides settled privately for an undisclosed amount, February in 2020 as well. HT proposed to pay an $80 million purchase price, primarily in High Times stock. But here's the catch. High Times stock does not exist. It didn't then, it doesn't now, it never has. The supposed high time stock was supposed to IPO on the NASDAQ, but a litany of internal issues kept them from competing, assuming from completing the process. And in January 2020, they settled for OTCQX, a sketchy penny stock index, and have been soliciting money from readers and small investors since. Some of y'all may remember the ads that were spread all throughout social media early on in the pandemic for high times, trying to get people to buy $420 shares. I know I remember those. Uh, well, their latest SEC filing in March revealed the IPO still has not happened and HT stock does not exist today. That Union Square rent, it has not been paid since the quote-unquote transaction was announced. Cannabis Business Law reported this week a California Superior Court judge dropped a thunderous gavel, ruling High Times must pay $5 million in back rent to Thor Equities, the company owning the space, and a few more high-dollar fees as well. Uh, to be exact, California Superior Court Judge Harold Kahn said the Stoner Mag owes $4.7 in, $4 million in unpaid rent, $626,000 in late charges, $564,000 in real estate taxes, $75,000 in late fees on those taxes, bringing up a grand total of about $5.9 million. But since Thor Equities had a secured credit line from, uh, from High Times uh, for a little over a million dollars, they shaved off that, bringing the grand total to about $4.9 million. Uh, or about $11,766,420 shares that don't exist. SFS notes High Times has been somewhat, uh, has somewhat developed a reputation for acquiring properties that they can't actually pay for. And uh, they even linked to a notorious story uh, HT called a hit piece by Politico back in 2020, listing all the deals that have gone wrong for the company um, since officially moving their HQ to LA in 2017. So when they announced an acquisition of 13 dispensaries in 2020, industry insiders collectively rolled their eyes, knowing that they'd believe it when the smoke cleared. A quick glance at their website will show six dispensaries are currently up and running in California, but the other seven claimed they still have not secured state or local cannabis retail permits. This is Rico Lamite, Dopest Dad on the Street, and um, I'd love to hear what the rest of the team has to say about high times, their money woes, and um, this $5 million bill that they are on the hook for. Will they be able to pay it? I was on I was on uh, one of the investor Zoom calls, and the, the guy, Adam Levin's uh, 
I don't know, investor, boss, whatever, the, the dude, the white dude, uh, he was he was handling the, the bulk of the Zoom call. And he was sitting in front of this gigantic liquor cabinet. I mean, it took up the whole entire wall. There was so much liquor. And he had a, a glass full of alcohol. And it was fairly early in the day, he was drinking. And uh, just it was just uh, smoke and mirrors kind of thing. And it went for about an hour. And then Adam Levin was like, okay, you can go now. We're going to just take questions and, and answers. And, and you can go now. And he didn't leave. And it, Adam kept saying, you can go now. And as soon as he left, Adam whips out a bong and takes a big bong rip. And it's like, what just happened? You're trying to talk all these people into buying high time stock and your boss is drinking alcohol on the call and you have to wait till daddy leaves the room so you can take a bong rip? <laughs> it's just like, hold on, hold on, hold on. First of all, Adam does not have a boss, okay? Whoever. That, that, dude, that, that dude would have been a paid presenter or something like no. that or had some other role in the company is definitely not Adam's boss. Well, he was Adam's daddy, and Adam had to wait for him to leave. <laughs> I, think, I think Adam was Maybe actually polite and not trying to cause a scene, as opposed Maybe. to... It's high uh, times! It's <laughs> fucking high times! So him taking him taking a bong rip on an investor call, like, what are we back in 2017, 2018? I, I, right, I, that too. What the fuck is really going on? <laughs> it's just bizarre. What were you yeah. saying, Jason? I just, I, I just wanted to echo what Jason was saying. Adam Levin has more money than he and all of the generations in his family could ever know what to do with. So he doesn't really need a, a boss, per se. Um, you do realize that that's Girls Gone Wild, Adam Levin, right? I forgot about that. Yep. What's the matter yeah, with Girls Gone Wild? Yeah, yeah but what I'll, what, I'll, what I'll let you guys know that I've dealt with a lot of affluent people and they never use their own money. And never. Susan, if you felt that, that's what, that's what it was. It doesn't matter if he has billions, he wants somebody else to fund this. And that can't be a shame. If what you said is accurate, that's just gross. You know, it's like for you to have to wait. Yeah. Uh, something's off there. And I'm so glad I missed that. Cause I wanted to invest. I thought, I remember when those things were being sent around, it was like high times. I was like, this is a brand that's going to be in cannabis forever. And somehow they managed to mess that up in these last few years. And then we actually had um, the dispensary that I, I run had a call with them because um, they were trying to purchase us. And we kind of laughed at them when they brought up the 100% stock a a acquisition because, um, like has been said here, they've never really had a relevant stock. So um, having that be your foot forward to try to purchase million-dollar companies is just kind of uh, – it's laughable. And high times can't even do high times properly anymore. You know, the investigative journalism is out the window. It's basically uh, just, you know, product placement. Let's keep smoking the news. He's the industry's longest continuously operating retailer known in Detroit as White Gucci, West Hollywood, El Presidente, and now in the United Kingdom, the booth free bloke. <laughs> Coming to the stage. <laughs> Coming to the stage is Jason Beck. What you got for us today? Happy that, Friday, my brother. That that is very very catchy, Rico. Good good job, good job. Very very proud of your writing abilities today. Very much inspired. So inspired that my story comes out of California, 
but has a West Coast or East Coast ending because a California marijuana dealer was held for ransom and killed in Carrollton Ridge. A man was taken hostage and held for ransom and shot to death. Then the place was held captive, set on fire, according to unsealed federal court records regarding the fire in May on Furrow Street in Carlton Ridge. Federal agents arrested Zion Thompson, 21, of Baltimore in connection with the crime. The ATF used facial recognition to identify the suspect. It was taken from security footage of him buying a burner phone. They used a cell phone tower to put him in the area of the crime and track him as Baltimore City firefighters battled flames, tearing through an unoccupied raw house. They discovered that the body of a man who was fatally shot, federal agents identified him as 35-year-old Miguel Soto Diaz of California. Officials said he was a marijuana dealer who had been kidnapped and held for ransom. Neighbors said it sounds like something out of a movie. You don't hear a lot about about a lot of people getting held for ransom anymore, and a lot of people are getting killed, said Isabel, a resident who did not want to give her last name. According to the federal court documents, Soto Diaz's kidnapper filmed him in a chair with duct tape over his mouth and zip ties on his hands and ankles. Court papers indicate that Thompson demanded 200 pounds of marijuana and $50,000 for the safe return of Soto Diaz. The Fed said he used a burner phone to call one of the victim's associates. Thompson also sent a photo of Soto Diaz during his ransom demand with a caption that read, Boppy said send the bags and money so he can can be okay and said don't call the police or he won't be coming home. We had a long conversation, 200 bags and $50,000. Most of the residents 11 News spoke with said they are not surprised. It's wild, but it's an everyday thing. It's not a shock, one resident of one resident rail said. One resident who did not want to be identified said they weren't surprised because it seems to be part of the norm. No, because because it's Baltimore. I've heard of people getting shot and burned up for a heck of a lot less than that, the resident said. Court documents indicate the victim's associates res, uh, responded, it's all bad. My uncles are coming with the feds, Thompson said, with with laughing emojis. Y'all, y'all not even legal. So if y'all come in with the feds, Tell y'all sell till y'all sell weed. Thompson is charged with conspiracy to distribute drugs and extortion. Investigators recovered a gas can and a nine millimeter shell casings at the residence. Arson investigators declared the fire intentionally set, and there is no word yet um, whether murder and arson charges will be filed. But I'll tell you what, I can pretty much tell you arson charges and murder charges will definitely be filed. They're probably waiting just for some ballistics reports and some scientific documentation. And this is Jason Beck reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. Just a note to everybody. Um, don't fuck with Baltimore. Like real talk, man. Like you will fuck around you will fuck around and not get found. You will not come home if you're trying to trap from coast to coast. Like Baltimore is like one of the places you just don't want to fuck with. You'll end up in a body bag. Yeah, everyone said things trapping and all this shit is all fun and games, you know what I'm saying, until something like this happens. This is reality. This does happen. This still happens. This is still a reality of life, people. Be careful out there. Let's keep it moving. Let's go to the next story. All right, coming up next, in an industry full of snakes, flakes, and flakes, 
It's the great purple state of Texas with trolls posting up daily smoking Delta 8 under the bridge. This fellow dope dad is hitting the high road. That's right. He's the host and co-creator of the new show with Sensi Magazine and fellow seeker of the truth. Coming up next, it's Stone Slade. Thank you, Jason Beck. I'm sorry if my audio is messed up, you guys. I just pulled off the highway to uh, to get my story on my way to meet the plug here in Texas where it's not legal. Anyway, today my story, I pulled it up from an article written by Brian Anderson and uh, coming out of uh, North Carolina. When it comes to legalizing cannabis, the Tar Heel state of North Carolina is taking the backseat approach. That's right. Instead of listening to the fine people of the state, where nearly three out of four respondents said cannabis should be legalized for medicinal use and another 57% support adult use legalization, state lawmakers have come up with Senate Bill 448, which passed both chambers of legislature with strong bipartisan support, and it's now on its way to Governor Roy Cooper's desk for his signature of approval. The bill's proponents admit that THC has medicinal benefits, including treatment for seizures. However, the only thing this bill does is set up automatic legalization if the Food and Drug Administration first approves cannabis for prescription use, the Drug Enforcement Administration removes it from the federal controlled substance schedules, and finally, even after all that, a state commission would then have to not object to that change. Yes, the state most known for Michael Jordan and tobacco cultivation, a cancer-causing product with no medicinal value, is choosing to just sit back and wait and see what the federal government does. One North Carolina lawmaker has taken exception to this approach, and not because it's keeping natural plant medicine out of the hands of North Carolinians where the overdose rate has rose by 40% in 2020. No, State Representative Larry Pittman, one of the only nine lawmakers to object to this measure, called the proposal a possible stepping stone to the legalization of marijuana. Oh my God. Representative Pittman then proposed an amendment to say, marijuana shall not be legalized in, the, in North Carolina regardless of federal action. However, the GOP House Speaker ruled that out of order. Pittman went on to say, it looks to me like it leaves it mighty wide open. If we're going to just say whatever the FDA does or whatever the federal government does, we're just going to go along with it. I'm sorry, I have a problem with that. I'm a states rights person, and I think states are primary, not the federal government. We don't just do whatever they do. Now, I have to say, while I don't agree with Mr. Pittman's reefer madness views on cannabis, I do agree with states' rights and find Bill 448 a half-assed chicken shit to do about nothing for cannabis legalization in North Carolina. So there you have it from deep in the heart of tobacco country. There will be no wacky tobacco until the feds say so. Maybe. And I'm Stone Slade reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. Hey, you know, Stone, I agree with you on the state's rights issue, except when there's corruption. And like you said, that is the heart of tobacco. Tobacco is one of the enemies of cannabis until such time that they find how they can make money on it. And I think that when you have powerful forces like that, they can tend to obscure the people's wills. So as a true believer, I believe the people of of North Carolina want cannabis, but if their votes and their will is being obscured by rich money interests in their state, that's when I think the feds have to kind of help out. I 100% agree with you, Gee, Sorry, 100% agree. That's exactly what's going on in the heart of tobacco. Yeah, I mean, they, like we had a story earlier this week, man, talking about that. Like anything that goes on in Virginia, I, I would not be surprised like now that Youngkin's taken back over the conversation um, in Virginia. But Virginia, North Carolina, South Carolina, it has to be it has to work in lockstep with big tobacco. It's just the way it is. They run everything down there in Tobacco Road, and it's going to be that way for the foreseeable future. Let's keep smoking the news.
let's sorry y'all here we go so our next correspondence beer game is damn near as deep and strong as his love for this magical plant itself a cannabis and ip attorney and ceo of fruit slabs up next brandon dorsky what do you have for us today thanks for having me today my headline comes from andrew long at mj biz daily it's cannabis retailers increasingly discounting their products Retailers are turning to discounts to manage aging inventories and an expanding product line across the board. A study tracking Canada and relatively mature domestic cannabis markets, California, Colorado, Oregon, Washington, and Michigan, as well as Nevada, Massachusetts, and Arizona, concluded that discounting percentages have increased across the board with double-digit discounting in almost all of the markets surveyed. The increased discounting reflects the rapid growth of brands and products available to consumers and retailers' efforts to move products and boost sales, said Christina Raymer, founder of Toronto-based consulting firm Vitrina Group. Combined discounts on recreational cannabis sales more than doubled over the past five years, um, from, I guess, 7% in June 2017 to 15% in April 2022. All categories have experienced increases in discounting since recreation and cannabis flower, the highest selling category, had double digit discounts in April in multiple states. Washington's flower discounting topped out in April this year at an average of 23%. The article failed to acknowledge that April discounting is often tied to the 420 holiday because of competitive pressures to get product visibility. Nonetheless, steep discounting existed outside of cannabis's holiday month. Washington reached an average of 20% in flower discounts for the first time in November of 2021. Nevada also experienced discounts reaching over 20%. Massachusetts was the only state track that, did ne- that never cracked the double-digit mark. Combined retail discounts in Massachusetts were only 2.7% in April of 2022. Canada has not experienced the same aggressive discounting, but total discounts in all provinces have increased from less than 1% in early 2019 to an average of 3.4% in April of 2022. And Ontario had the highest discount percentage at 4.1% in April of 2022. In Canada, the retailers absorbed the cost of discounting because wholesale prices are typically set by the government. In the U.S., the cost of that discounting is basically passed along to the manufacturers, and in some markets, discounting pressures and some anti-competitive discounting behavior is impacting product availability and or visibility. The aggressive discounting is directly correlated to the increase in cannabis product availability. Product growth has surged since 2018, with almost 5,000 new brands and 189,000 new products coming to market in California, Colorado, Michigan, Nevada, Oregon, and Washington alone, for an average of over 30,000 new SKUs per state. In California, there were 8,391 products in Q1 of 2018, and there are now 39,269 different products available as of the first quarter of 2022. Similar growth has been realized in Canada with product offerings moving from 500 products in 2019 to over 10,400 products this year and growth from 64 brands to 1,400 brands. Despite all the market growth, the article acknowledges a very dark side to discounting. Discounting is used as a lever to increase the sales velocity of a SKU. The difficulty though is you have to increase the velocity enough to offset the cost associated with running the discount, said Christina Raymer. And if that cannot be done consistently and accurately, Discounting can be extremely detrimental to a business and a potential death nail to it. Raymer recommends that retailers better understand the intended and unintended consequences of discounting and prepare a strategy that appreciates the consequences. 
She suggested brands and retailers need to be more targeted in their discounting at a store at any given time. I tend to agree with her recommendations. This is Brandon Dorsky reporting for the State of Cannabis News. Hey, Brandon. I wanted to uh, point out that when I was in Canada last year for a little family vacation, I believe I got a $75 tax included quarter ounce of cannabis. So, you know, for us here, we should realize that they've been pushing a more broad legal flower agenda, and that's the reality of prices. We have not hit the bottom of pricing. And so I think a lot of this discounting is because there's room there. Retailers only, it is that velocity times margin perspective, you know, where you have to have the velocity to make up the lost margin. But at the end of the day, commodity prices, and I hate to call cannabis that, are dropping. And so even us in the value added section are forced to continue to reduce our prices. As a premium brand, I am candidly pulling the lever where I'm trying to give the discounts to the retailer and make sure that front facing, I'm not discounting so it doesn't seem like we're in free fall, but it's quite difficult because oftentimes the retailer not only takes it from us, but then does whatever they want. Unlike other CPG sectors, we haven't gotten to that point where brands can work well with retailers to get real MSRPs or bottom floor pricing. The retailers can do whatever they want. Um, and dispensaries are still not really curated in the sense that they stand for something. They are just outlets. Uh, and, you know, Jason, I'd love to hear what you think on that part, that point. I mean, <clears throat> retailers are always going to continue to do discounts and sales, especially on stuff that is being being shelf, shelf sitting. I mean, stuff that flies off the shelf typically doesn't get discounted. And still, still, in my opinion, yeah, you might have a sale or something someday around around those certain types of products or whatnot but um if, if stuff is sitting that shit's going to get marked down even if we end up having to take a loss because the shelf space is more valuable than what's not being sold there and and just to echo what jason's saying the state finally allowing for returns from license to license is going to alleviate a lot of this um, unnecessary discounting, at least that's what my thoughts are, because as a smaller retailer, it's really hard to take a chance on a newer brand. And if you take a chance on somebody, and like Jason said, that product's sitting, you have to make a return on it and you have to get something else in there. So if they now allow us as retailers to return products that aren't selling to these brands, it's going to not only allow you to resell those without de devaluing your brand, but it's gonna allow us to, to not have to take losses on these sales. So maybe farmers markets are a good idea just to sh prove that brands are wanted by consumers. It just, I wonder it's like, how low can we go here because my concern on this, as we all have, is that how long these MSOs can continue to lose money and drop the price while everybody else falls off. I think they all like um, they all planned and prepared for a five-year runway. I think it's more like seven to ten, Rico. But you're you're accurate accurate there. <laughs> and uh, everybody else, all the all the people at the bottom are already going to be tapped out. The taxes are going to be lower, and the price is going to be lower, and it's going to be just smooth sailing from there on out for the MSOs they're, and big ass. They're betting on how long it's going to take to drown all of the actual operators out and then they can just do whatever the fuck they want with our industry. Well, what about 2023? Isn't that when they're supposed to have these unlimited license size? I mean, cultivation. Yeah. The yeah. Type five. Sorry. Sorry yeah. about that. Yeah. Cultivations. Apologize. 
That's correct. And, and I think something that uh, these MSOs might not be thinking about is antitrust enforcement, because all of this anti-competitive activity operating at a loss based on a runway, that's simply not legal from an antitrust perspective. You're not allowed to fund a losing venture to try to drive everybody else out of business. I'd be, uh, but just a quick rebuttal to that, Omar. Um, look what's going on in Silicon Valley. Are they breaking up the, the big tech companies? Is something that it's an industry that has not had any precedent in the United States. And I think they're going to have a lot of trouble breaking up these large MSOs. Um, it's quoted as as monopolies. It seems to happen every century with unfettered capitalism that you get, you know, so many companies that are too big to fail and um, they got to get broken up. Otherwise, we end up with oligopolies. Or yeah, just you know, I remember eight. They're big, too big to fail, and we end up bailing them out, and we all end up paying for it as taxpayers. People at the bottom of the totem pole. Yeah, I remember that with like a service like cell phones, you know, or, or phones in general with AT and T and the whole Ma Bell thing. But with cannabis, one, I don't know that we have large MSOs. But Omar, given that it's illegal to have, you know, especially the ones that are public, you know, like let's say Canadian companies that have shell organizations here in the U.S. that are funding. Uh, you know, American companies, we know for a fact they're operating at a lost leader purposely. I don't know that I can assign the nefarious quality of just trying to force all legacy operators out. I think they're just trying to grow their monopoly by forcing anybody out, right, by essentially playing this long-term game. How do we go about proving that and calling that out? Because, yeah, as an operator, I feel that happening. I can, I have literally vultures waiting for my balance sheet to slowly abate so then they can come in and scoop me up. Like it's mm. so odd. They're almost saying it. How do I, yeah. I know they're not profitable. So I don't want to take a paper deal from them because I'm then instead of controlling my future, <laughs> rolling my equity stake into a company that's not profitable. And that's run mm. by people that don't look like me. That's right. Um, those are very good questions. I need to do some research. I want to learn more about this law so that it can be enforced. Look at that. We're together. We're going to make a difference. You guys. We can work it out. Yes, we can. And we can also, we're going to relight this room and keep going. You are tuned into the State of Cannabis News Hour, your daily dose. Often the opinions expressed in the State of Cannabis News Hour are those of the individual speakers and not those of any other speaker, the State of Cannabis, or its members. The statements made in the State of Cannabis News Hour do not constitute legal or accounting advice, and the State of Cannabis and the speakers make no representation regarding the legal status of any exceptions in any country, area, or territory, or of any authorities. The views expressed in this room do not establish any fiduciary relationship. The sponsorships of the State of Cannabis News Hour do not imply or constitute any endorsement by the State of Cannabis or the expression of any opinion whatsoever on the part of the State of Cannabis or any speaker. Viewer discretion advised. Let's keep smoking the news. Is it a bird? Is it a plane? No, it's a delivery van with a delivery smoother than DHL and a price point lower than FedEx. That's right. It's Clark Kent Delivery. Coming next to the stage is Christopher Smith. He's, an, he's a communication strategist, a publisher of the American Cannabis Report. What do you have this morning for us, Clark Kent? <laughs> Thank you, Jason. Good morning, Rico. Susan, thinking about you. I'm still on the East Coast. <clears throat> Sorry, my voice sounds worse than I am. I feel great. Um, after my little experiment with gravity in New York City last week at the New York conference, but I'm still out here on the East Coast. Um, one thing, well, one deal that I had been working on, meeting uh, a meeting that I've been trying to work on for nine months was canceled at the last minute because the CEO got COVID. So that's still out there. It's still a thing. So be careful out there. My story is from the Connecticut Mirror. 
uh, and make medical cannabis a federal option. So this is an opinion piece. It's not really news per se, but it's a topic I feel that it may be worth discussing because it's bothered me for a long time that our industry is trying to get the federal government to do something that we've never been successful at the state level. And there are many smarter people than I in this room, and I would love to hit this real quickly and, and have a discussion about it because obviously the federal legalization effort is suffering. Ever since Chuck Schumer announced he was taking the whole effort on his shoulders, and we all groaned, and he has not failed to disappoint in his ability to disappoint. So first, the opinion piece focuses on the areas where cannabis uh, provides relief in a uh, medicinal context, and it ends with a list of illnesses and conditions which where cannabis, quote, helps and, quote, could help and, quote, could prevent. So you're welcome to read it. None of this will be news to you, and there are enough weasel words to make your head spin. But we're stalled in Washington. We need to discuss options to keep moving forward. So I want to start here and open up a conversation. And it's not about retreat, but it's about a lateral move and perhaps a new way of thinking about getting forward. First, I think it's obvious that almost all states, if not 100%, we all legalized medical marijuana first. <clears throat> and yet the federal effort is to legalize adult use first. So and I know we've talked about this before, but I just want to keep this conversation alive. Um, when did we get so ballsy or so reckless as to think that this might be possible, this new strategy first time when we're trying the hardest mountain to climb? Or are our best interests being hijacked and delayed on purpose? Is Chuck Schumer taking one for the prohibitionist team and failing on purpose? So I always thought this little alliteration, medical marijuana, was a little bit too cute. It perpetuates the word marijuana, first of all, which is problematic uh, for many instead of cannabis. It's not strictly true. Uh, it's not strictly medical necessarily. And ultimately, I wonder if that was a little bit of a poison pill also, the little bit of sabotage that we all got brought into. Because the word medical, I think, uh, is really used in specific ways, right? A medical degree is a federal deg degree. A medical facility has to pass all sorts of regulatory hurdles before it can use that word. And I believe anything that needs, wants to be called medicine has to be approved by the FDA, pretty sure. Um, so I don't really like the term medical marijuana. And I've wondered why we call it medical when we, we don't have the time or the billions of dollars to go through that double blind trials and all the rest. How did we get pulled into this sort of fiasco? I like the word medicinal better. It's a little more vague. It has too many syllables to make it totally sexy, but it's more accurate. And hopefully it would get us out of the sort of laser beam of the FDA if we were to think about medicinal or supplemental uh, or those sort of terms and use them more. It's a, a wellness product, not a medical, not a big pharma, not a medical industry product. And what if we think if we think that federalization is possible and the strategy that's a, that works for us is better for us, should we pull back from Chuck Schumer and his lost mission and consider perhaps a strategy that includes medicinal? and deschedule, and that way we would hopefully get out of the DEA's way. We would stop the FDA from blocking research. It would allow banking. It would open interstate commerce and all the things that we have talked about many times here. Um, is that something that we should start talking about and maybe even take a sidestep on the strategy toward full federal legalization? I would love to hear what you guys have to say. We've got Michelle up from the audience. Michelle, did you want to weigh in? Yeah, um, so as a parent of a pediatric patient who cannot get access at school to a rescue medicine, I really do want there to be some sort of federal medical rules because until we have that 
even if I can get the permission, which is it's in the state house now to be able to have the cannabis in her school for a rescue medicine, I cannot get a doctor to actually write a script for a seizure rescue plan. So these are issues and you should think about these kinds of things. That's all. Thank you. Yeah. I, you know, I, I, it's, it's interesting. I think that if waiting, this is the point. I think you make a great point that the medical term is divisive and it's not accurate. Wellness is the only term to be applied to cannabis, not recreational, not medicinal. Those of us who know cannabis know that it is a wellness product. You don't abuse it like alcohol or other drugs. It's not the same vibe as alcohol when you're partying. So recreational is not accurate. Fully medical or medicinal, not accurate. Maybe in the future we'll have real medicinal products when we allow universities to research this. But as it relates to your specific example of having this in school, the only way to do that is to really make it what it should be, more like an OTC product, something that is not so demonized and so feared. Because even I have kids as well, and I would never want to put kids in harm's way, and they, we always pull that kid card, but I believe cannabis is non-toxic, more non-toxic than many of the things that are probably in the nurse's cabinet right now. That's the problem. And when we allow the feds to have a term like medical, that's when we fall into the same trap of just going around in circles as to what cannabis is. We should not allow the feds to use this term medical because it's only going to cause more craziness, more infighting, more confusion. We should encourage them to just regulate this plant fully as a wellness product that is safe for all consumers to use. Amen. That's the gospel, the gospel of ghee there. I was going to say generally recognized as safe. I agree. The medical has done us some damage. That was great, Guy. Thank you. I love the way you clarify things. You just really put a point on a sharp point on things. You're fair. Thank you for that story, Christopher. <clears throat> Let's keep smoking the news. Let's. So up next, he's the founder of a boutique cannabis law firm with bicoastal offices located in California and New York. Also NCIA director, legal publisher, author, a ganjier and purple belt and high style Brazilian jiu-jitsu. So don't be surprised if in the cipher he ends up breaking your wrist and walking away if you decide to make the poor choice of passing the duchy on the right-hand side. Omar, figure out what you got for us today, man. That's right. If you pass the duchy on the right-hand side, prepare to tap. Thank you, Rico. Fabulous Friday, everyone. My story is from National Public Radio by Rachel Treisman. The headline is, The war is speeding up Ukraine's efforts to legalize medical cannabis. And the story is that Ukraine's government is moving to legalize medical cannabis, in part due to the trauma wrought by Russia. Minister of Healthcare Viktor Lyashko wrote on Facebook on Tuesday, more than 100 days into the war, that, Ukra that Ukraine's cabinet had approved a bill, quote, on regulating the circulation of cannabis plants for medical, industrial purposes, scientific and scientific technical activities to create the conditions for expanding the access of patients to the necessary treatment of cancer and post-traumatic stress disorder resulting from war. The draft bill will now head to Ukraine's parliament, where it will need to be approved by at least 226 votes, the Kyiv Post reports. It's a reworked version of a bill that lawmakers originally failed to pass last summer. Liashko suggested there will be more support for legalizing medical cannabis this time around. 
We understand the negative consequences of war on the state of mental health, he wrote. We understand the number of people who will need medical treatment as a result of this impact. And we understand there, that there is no time to wait. He said the bill will ensure a, quote, full cycle of cannabis-based drug production in Ukraine, end quote, stressing that the country will gradually develop its own industry rather than relying on imports. It would give the government strict control of the cultivation, production, and sale of drugs, the health ministry said in the statement. Patients would be able to get those products through a doctor's prescription, according to Forbes. Liashko stressed that cannabis drugs are not competitors to narcotics and that completely different measures are taken to regulate their circulation. He alluded to communication campaigns against cannabis that have tried to discredit its medical value. On the contrary, the health ministry notes, cannabis can prevent suffering and improve treatment of more than 50 conditions, including PTSD, neurological diseases, and sleep disorders. Cannabis-based drugs also play a key role in palliative care, alleviating pain in patients with cancer and HIV, Liashko added. Dozens of countries have legalized medical marijuana in some capacity in recent years, and some Ukrainian lawmakers and advocates have long been pushing Ukraine to do the same. Kyra Rudik, a member of Ukraine's parliament, noted on Twitter that the liberal Holos party initiated the original bill back in 2019, adding, we strongly believe it is about mercy, not drugs. And a national poll conducted by then presidential candidate Vladimir Zelensky in 2020 found widespread support for medical cannabis, as the Kyiv Post reported. Nearly 65% of respondents said they supported the legalization of medical cannabis to relieve pain for people with terminal illnesses, while 29% were opposed. Ukraine partly legalized the use of certain cannabis products, synthetic cannabis-like chemicals dronabinol and nabilone, as well as cannabis extract nabiximals for medical purposes last April. Just months later, however, the cannabis legalization bill was sent back for revision after it failed to get enough votes in Parliament, with 184 lawmakers voting in favor, 33 voting against, and 61 abstaining. Ukraine has a long and winding history with cannabis, having cultivated hemp for centuries. Soviet Ukraine was one of the world's biggest manufacturers of hemp, which was used for oil, cloth, and food. But the country began to stigmatize cannabis and the people using it over time, as Lena Braslavskaya told Forbes in late February. She manages marketing and public relations for Kyiv-based cannabis website Ask Growers and said Ukraine's journey to legalizing cannabis is only just beginning and very much impacted by the ongoing war. Before the war, we had forecasts in the company regarding the legalization of first medical and then recreational cannabis in Ukraine, she explained. The time frame varied from five to 10 years, depending on the change of power and the growing up of a new generation. Now it is quite difficult to build a new forecast because it is not at all clear when this war will end. My take is I hope the war ends soon. Cannabis has been cultivated in Ukraine for centuries, and I am glad that the people of Ukraine understand that cannabis is a crucial medicine for healing the ills of war, an herb for the healing of the nations. The headline is, the war is speeding up Ukraine's efforts to legalize medical cannabis. This is Omar Figueroa, lawyer, author, and Ganjie instructor, 
reporting from the Sonoma Coast, the traditional territory of the Kashaya Pomo Nation for the State of Cannabis News Hour. Kudos to Ukraine for doing the right thing and starting to understand that PTSD is only, as far as I'm concerned, solved by the awesomeness of cannabis. Most of the products that we're giving soldiers here domestically just have way too many side effects that just don't really solve the problem. Um, you know, side effects are an issue themselves, and so why bother? Um, moreover, I hope that they end up really embracing this plant, and when this is all settled, that they get a thriving uh, community of Russians coming over and giving them dollars for cannabis. Rubles. I feel like it's going to be really hard for them to set up any type of infrastructure when you're undergoing a, a, a war zone. And so I feel for the people there, and I just feel like they should just legalize weed completely, just let people just smoke weed and then worry about their regulatory framework after the war. I agree. I think that uh, this is, I guess, a tiny bit of silver lining in this horrible disaster. And this shows the different direction that Ukraine would go. If it was up to Russia, cannabis would be completely illegal. There would not be a medical cannabis. Yeah, it shows, it shows that uh, it's, it's interesting that they made it a priority when they're in the middle of the fog of war. So, they, you know, I think this is great news. Thank you so much, Omar. Let's keep well, coming up next, this OG veteran and dope dads known and respected by peers as a steadfast defender of the culture, always first to stand up for the rights of the legacy operators. The co-founder and CEO of Papa and Barkley is coming next to the stage. Take your seat, y'all. It's time to listen to the Gospel of Key Records. Thank you, Jason. Good morning, Susan. Good morning, Rico. Team, I'm going to try to be as impartial as possible, but this headline is one of the ones where I'm like, why does it need to be written? This is coming out of cannabis now. Irradiated cannabis is real. While irradiated cannabis may sound scary, the weed industry says not to worry. I don't know what weed industry they're talking about. Consumer advocacy groups, however, are raising concerns. Isn't it interesting that the weed industry, as I know it, is a bunch of advocates. So I don't know what weed industry is saying that not to worry and what advocacy groups are pushing back. Because from my perspective, we are still one in the same as we are in that fight. But I, let me go on because some of this starts in Canada, as you can imagine. Is irradiated cannabis really a thing? If you're in Canada, the answer is likely yes. The practice is catching through the United States where cannabis is legal. And of course, they say marijuana. I will not say that because you know you guys know what I'm talking about. Even while cannabis producers and the irradiation industry keep assuring us that it's safe means to remediate, quote, remediate harvested flour, reduce bacteria, molds, pests, They point out decades of employment of the irradiation to extend the shelf life of food products and keep them free of bugs and pathogens. Cannabis consumers should be aware, however, that food irradiation has never lived up to industry expectations since it was approved for widespread use in this country in in the 1980s. And some consumer advocacy voices are skeptical that this is the way to go for the cannabis industry. Industry reassurances, irradiated cannabis, got some media's coverage, when Forbes ran uh, an article on the practice uh, on April 30th, I just realized I should step back and let you guys know what irradiated cannabis really is. Basically, this comes out of the military when they were using food irradiation to extend the life of, of, of foodstuffs for the military. And basically, they use high energy gamma rays, electron beams, or x-ray or x-rays, which are a million times powerful, more powerful than, like, let's say, a standard x-ray. And they break up bacteria, fold, 
sp bacteria, spores, mold, insects. So you can see that if you have a grow, especially a booth grow in, in Canada with indoor and you don't know what you're doing, irradiating your plants to kill mold and other uh, pesticides or pests and stuff like that might seem like a way to go. But it comes from this radioactive isotope, which is not naturally occurring, cobalt-60, and it doesn't actually make it into the food, but the article says, parentheses, barring any mishaps. My point here is, why are we irradiating cannabis when we have an abundance of cannabis? Luckily, the article goes on to say how consumers have pushed back. While the radiation was approved by the FDA, it is not considered organic. And while the FDA has not found any actual detrimental effects, it has been found that the radiation can reduce uh, nutrients and can create unique radiolotic products. I'm not sure what that means. It does not sound good. Going further, uh, the article talks about this notion of the prevent preventative principle. Shout out to Kyle Baker, co-founder of the Illinois-based Echo Buds, because he's basically saying you should not need to irradiate if you are keeping your room clean. I can tell you as a grower, uh, I used ozonation in between my grow rooms. So after you've cleared out the plants, you ozonate to kill everything and start fresh. That's preventative. And uh, Mr. Baker actually calls that out here, how ozone and other products are used to clean beforehand, but you would not use them with the plant because they do create detrimental effects, right? So all I'm saying here is why? Why would we irradiate cannabis? Why would we literally hit it with microwaves and uh, a form of nuclear technology just because we want to get all this booth weed to market when we already have plenty of weed and plenty of people who can grow practices? I would encourage all of us as we're looking at products to make sure that we only buy products that were created in the most natural and sustainable way. Because if we do that, there'll still be plenty of cannabis for us and we will all benefit from better products. And most importantly, our mother earth will also benefit. Irradiating and creating these artificial cobalt 60, you don't think they have to throw that away? We no longer have the Op, the, the, the option of being reductionist people. We have to look at these things and say, I don't want cobalt 60 created to irradiate my cannabis, whether it's good or not. The word irradiated in cannabis should never have appeared in a sentence, in my opinion. Anyway, this is Guy Rocourt reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. Watch out for nuclear weed, y'all. Guy, would you consider a microwave this same type of uh, thing that we're talking about? Yeah, you know, I, I it's so funny. It's it's not it's not dissimilar technology. I take your point. Like active, like using microwave technology to vibrate water molecules to create heat. We all use microwaves back in the day. We are all suspect, but we don't consider microwave food premium, and it's a, a, a factor of convenience. But I do believe it's not dissimilar in the technology. Well, the the, the reason the reason I say that, Gee, is because I know back in back in the days, um, in, in the early days. We would do that with specific genetics, you know, mainly OG Kush and whatnot. And we would put a pound in a microwave for two or three seconds and take it out before it was ever sold. So in that way, if there was a seed in there, it would never pop. Wow. <laughs> wow. I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure that that's different, um, especially with the time and the amount that you're doing it uh, with the microwave versus irradiation, like you mentioned with the cobalt. And the thing is, also, they've been doing that in food for a while, and a lot of people are pretty conscious of their food, prefer to buy uh, non-irradiated spices and other things, because usually people believe, a lot of cultures believe that there's a lot more medicinal value that that irradiation is killing off. 
My microwave is my spice cabinet. I have not used my microwave for over, well over a decade. No nuclear weed for me. Thank you. Yeah, and well, you your know, spices are all contaminated, Susan. No nuclear weed for me either, <laughs> Susan. I agree with you. I think it's it's a scary thought. When I first heard of this in the Nevada marketplace, I was terrified and made sure that you know, I'm only purchasing from the legal marketplace what I know is not radiated. I, I just can't believe that that's what they're allowing to happen to this this plant. Hold on. So so if if it was like good weed. Would you call it a nuke bomb? Would I call it napalm? <laughs> no, a nuke bomb. A nuke bomb. <laughs> yeah. I don't. I don't want anything that's been radiated um, consuming. I don't want to burn anything that's been radiated. That's a terrifying thought to me. What? What about yeah. people that also, radiate uh, amazingness? Ah. So <laughs> like you guys look. I'm sure. I'm sure we're going to be able to prove this definitively. Yesterday, I learned something which is always so exciting. Uh, I met a young scientist or a scientist at our event yesterday and kind of started telling me that, you know, we test for terpenes and we test for cannabinoids. But when we look at terpenes, like let's say lemonine, and it peaks on our gas chromatograph, the fact is there may be other esters and ketones that are supporting that. And we need to start to expand our testing, go not GC, but maybe HPLC and more. So we can start to see these esters and ketones. And I encourage them, I'm like, I wanna know the difference between indoor and outdoor, you know, those subtle differences in those micro compounds, are they changing indoor to outdoor? But more importantly, are they changing when the plant is irradiated? We don't know what we're giving up when we blast this thing with a nuclear thing. Look, I've been besieged by mold and other things. But again, we have an abundance of cannabis. Grow good cannabis and don't need to take these remediative measures. That's all there is to it. Facts, That's Those are the facts. Grow good cannabis. Yeah, we've got That's, plenty. I'm just a fucking blessed right now. But we should keep smoking the news. Jesus. <laughs> so she is an attorney at law focusing on cannabis entertainment and psychedelics and does a phenomenal job documenting her adventures on social media and her appropriately titled podcast, Shall We Talk? So before you hit the stage today, I think I need to ask an appropriate Friday beautiful morning question. Shalina Panu, shall we? Oh, we shall, Rico. <laughs> Good morning, everyone. My name is Shalina, and my headline for today is U.S. Border Patrol Checkpoint Season Cannabis and Cannabis Only. The U.S. Government Accountability Office website states from 2016 to 2020, Border Patrol apprehended about 35,700 potentially removable people in about 17,500 events at Checkpoint. During the same period, Border Patrol seized drugs in about 17,790 events at checkpoints. GAO found that most drug seizure events involved only U.S. citizens, of which 75% involved seizure of cannabis and no other drug. They said marijuana, but I crossed that out and put cannabis. Uh, the GAO acknowledged that certain other checkpoint activity data included... Uh, including on apprehensions of smuggled people and canine assists with drug seizures were unreliable. 
For example, although sector officials said canines were integral to checkpoint drug seizures, there was a wide variation across sectors in how often agents documented canine assist with such events. Additionally, Border Patrol developed a tool to collect information about outcomes of secondary inspections at checkpoints. However, because the agency did not require agents to use the tool, only about half of checkpoints did so. Without reliable checkpoint data, Border Patrol does not have the information it needs to access checkpoint effectiveness, ensure proper resource allocation or explain checkpoint operations. So the question is, why did the GAO decide to do this study? GAO states Border Patrol has primary responsibility for securing the border between U.S. ports of entry. As part of its border enforcement strategy, Border Patrol operates immigration checkpoints where uh, Border Patrol agents screen vehicles to identify people of foreign nationality who are potentially removable and they may enforce U.S. criminal laws such as seizing illegal drugs and inter inter uh, directing human smugglers. GAO was asked to review Border Patrol's use of immigration checkpoints. As such, the GAO makes seven recommendations, including that Border Patrol takes several actions to strengthen checkpoint oversight and data. DHS concurred with each of the recommendations. Benzinga reports Border Patrol headquarters officials told us that they typically focus their oversight of drug seizure data on relatively large seizures, at, such as cannabis seizures, over 100 pounds on the southwest border. As a result, officials acknowledge that incorrect documentation of small quantities of cannabis, such as trace amounts, would likely be undetected by headquarters. Benzinga further states that the report showed a significant decline, 56% in cannabis seizures at checkpoints over the course of four years, which is in line with more and more states legalizing the plant. They also report that the GAO said that those who have their cannabis seized may be, one, referred to state or local authorities for criminal investigation, or two, released. The report also shows a decline in cannabis seizures at checkpoints over the last four years, largely due to states legalizing. What are your thoughts on Border Patrol's activities? My name is Shalina, and I'm reporting for the State of Cannabis NewsHour. Thanks so much for the story, Shalina. Um, this scares me a little bit or upsets me a little bit hesitant as a traveler because I often feel pretty confident traveling with like my vape pen and other things. And obviously, as we've seen in Russia with Brittany Grimer, um, this, this causes me to um, hesitate a little bit. So thank you for the heads up. Um, I, I, Liz, I, I don't think they're really confiscating those small amounts. What they're talking about is traffickers that are trafficking in major weight. And one of the reasons why cannabis is the most uh, caught up kind of drug is because one is the most easiest to detect because of its terpy aromatic effervescence, along with the big bulkiness of the size. Thanks for clarifying. Say that again, Jason. It's terpy what? It's terpiness. Girthiness. Terpiness effervescence. <sighs> He's trying to say smelly. Exactly. <laughs> Thank you, Omar. I have a new aromatic. sound bite. Ar aromatic effervescence. That was delightful. Yeah. Yeah. I've got a new soundbite. Oh my goodness. We've already reached the top of the hour. That was a really great show. If you missed any of it, <clears throat> you can catch it anywhere you get your podcasts. Please subscribe <clears throat> and leave us a review. A big thank you to all the correspondents that comb through all the headlines each day to bring us just what we need to know. A big thank you to Rico and Jason for co-producing the show and our pinup girl, Liz Rogan. Thank you, audience, for being an important part of our show. You've had your daily dose. Now go out there and make a difference. You've been tuned in to the State of Cannabis News Hour, where we collectively move policy forward in an inclusive and sustainable way. Start your morning on a high note and join us every weekday, 9 a.m. Pacific time for the State of Cannabis News Hour, your daily dose. Bye.
Thank you, everybody. Hey, what are you still doing here? The show's over. You just don't want to leave, do you? I know. We love you, too. Help us grow by grabbing some of our merch. We've got hats, bags, hoodies, water bottles, all the standards. It would really mean a lot. Go to justsaycare.org backslash shop today. Really, I mean it. Today, with the supply chain issues, you might get it by Christmas. The good news is that inflation will be so bad, you'll be locked into a low, low price. Remember, justsaycare.org. Thanks. Okay, go listen to another podcast. Bye.